Welcome to The S Factor. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting edition of The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. And if you love science, you've landed on the right spot on your radio dial or your podcasting service. The S Factor stands for science, and each and every month, the first Saturday of every month, in fact, at 1 o'clock, right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, we cruise around the solar system, go into interstellar space a little bit, talk about all things terrestrial and celestial, right here on the S Factor. Welcome aboard my starship. So much stuff to get to, so many cool things to talk about today. Let's get right into it. Did you feel that? Probably not, but your DNA did. Every single second, cosmic rays are ripping through your body, wreaking havoc. This, according to Live Science, they're invisible, they're plentiful, they're deadly, they're cosmic rays. Every cubic centimeter of space is soaked with these cosmic rays, tiny subatomic particles constantly streaming through it. Cosmic rays are mostly made up of protons, but occasionally include heavier atomic nuclei. They travel at nearly the speed of light. One detected cosmic ray, known cheekily as the OMG particle, because of its extreme energy, slammed into our atmosphere in 1991 while traveling at 99. There's a bunch of nines percent the speed of light, according to the McDonald's Institute's hyperphysics reference page. That's fast. Despite the name, cosmic rays are not rays at all. But in 1911, when scientist Victor Hess sent the first cosmic ray detectors to an altitude of 5,300 meters, and that's 17,388 feet, into the atmosphere, he could tell the difference between particles and electromagnetic radiation, according to NobelPrize.org. Whatever they were made of, they were beams of super high energy from space. Even later experiments would reveal their particle nature. The name stuck. Now, cosmic rays come from a variety of sources, all of them intense. When giant stars die, they turn themselves inside out in a matter of seconds in a fantastic explosion known as a supernova. A single supernova event can outshine an entire galaxy's worth of stars. And so they provide enough energy to accelerate particles to nearly light speed. Now think about that a second. When a star dies and goes supernova, it can outshine an entire galaxy's worth of stars. That is immense energy. Now stellar mergers can also generate the required energies along with the birth of new stars. Tidal disruption events, like when a star gets eaten by a black hole, and the frenetic accretion disks around massive black holes. They all release cosmic rays at a variety of energies, which then go on to flood the cosmos. Now our Milky Way galaxy has a weak but large magnetic field which deflects the paths of any cosmic rays streaming in from the rest of the universe. By the time these cosmic rays from outside the galaxy arrive at our detectors on Earth, they come in from random directions with no discernible origin. Modern-day astronomers have a variety of tools available to hunt for these high-energy particles. The simplest method is through direct detection. Build a box and wait for a cosmic ray to strike it and record the results. Such detectors have been outfitted on the International Space Station, for example, 
but these are limited in size and only train their sights on a small portion of the observable universe. And so the largest cosmic ray observations use indirect methods. Now, cosmic rays constantly strike Earth's atmosphere, according to NASA. When they do, they release their pent-up energy in the form of a shower of secondary particles, which then make their way to the ground. That shower can then be detected. Now, cosmic rays of all energies are essentially horrible for humans and their objects. They can disrupt electronics and mess up digital cameras. As a form of ionizing radiation, they can have a variety of health consequences. According to NASA, they can generate reactive oxygenated species inside cells, which at high levels can stress cells and lead them to cell suicide, introduce DNA mutations, and spark replication errors that lead to cancer. On the surface of Earth, the thick atmosphere protects most people from the damaging effects of cosmic rays, but cosmic rays pose a serious risk to astronauts, especially as space agencies contemplate long-term missions to the Moon and Mars. A six-month stint on the ISS will give astronauts a dose of radiation from cosmic rays equivalent to about 25 lifetimes on the surface. A round-trip mission to Mars, including some time on its unprotected surface, will triple that exposure. So these cosmic rays are some serious stuff, and serious, we have to seriously contend with these things. So if have to really think about how these impact our body, the human body, especially as they're saying here, if we plan on taking that trip to Mars, we have to consider all of the dangerous aspects of space. You know, radiation is a big one. Space agencies are currently hard at work determining the long-term adverse health effects of accumulated cosmic ray damage and trying to develop systems to mitigate the risk, such as designing capsules where the cargo act as a cosmic ray shield with the human astronauts protected in the center. Even though cosmic rays are generally a nuisance, the evolution of life may have been impossible without them. Cosmic rays cause mutations, and so cosmic rays are linked to the ability to evolve. The link between cosmic rays and evolution has long been overlooked, but it is rapidly gaining interest from a variety of fields. For example, we do not understand the transition from non-life to life, especially the fact that 19 of the 20 natural amino acids produced by living organisms exhibit homotrality, meaning they're structurally arranged so they cannot be superposed on their mirror image. Cosmic rays may play a role in that step. So what they're saying here, we're, we're learning about how dangerous cosmic rays are to us, how intense that energy can be, the dangers in space that it provides. So cosmic rays may have even been involved in our evolution. So very interesting there. Cosmic rays, quite deadly, and maybe one of the reasons we evolved to where we are today. This next news bit is from Space.com, and this is something that, my goodness, I don't know how many movies have been made on this happening, how many television shows. I mean, I've talked about it quite a bit here on The S Factor. What would happen if an asteroid were going to hit Earth? So right now, if we knew that was going to happen, what would that be like? What, what would we be going through here on Earth? So a NASA scientist explains... Now, with NASA's DART asteroid deflection mission about to launch and a new movie, Asteroid Disaster, coming to Netflix, this question is hot on many people's minds. Now, a NASA scientist had weighed in 
on what the agency would do if there really was an asteroid about to collide with Earth. Thankfully, NASA has found no intimate asteroid threats to Earth during its many decades of searching. But just in case, the agency always has a backup plan or multiple, as NASA program scientist Kelly Fast says in a new video. For those looking to have some fun thinking about what if, now Fast is a program manager for NASA's Near-Earth Object Observations Program. There is a part of the agency's Planetary Defense Coordination Office, the office with a mandate to study these threats from Congress, works with a range of partner telescopes to scan the skies and help to figure out logistical matters and impact scenarios. It's important to find asteroids before they find us in case we need to get them before they get us, Fast says in the video. An asteroid impact is the only natural disaster that could be prevented. NASA's Planetary Defense Coordination Officer Office supports projects to discover asteroids and to calculate their orbits far into the future. Now, FAST also talked about the impending launch of the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, which is known as DART, that's the acronym for DART, which is scheduled to depart on November 23rd. The spacecraft will eventually slam into a small asteroid orbiting a larger asteroid to see if the maneuver will change its course so it orbits closer. Measurements on the moon's orbit will be made to see if the path shifted in partnership with a European Space Agency spacecraft. The eventual goal for this mission is to test potential asteroid diverting technologies in case a small space rock was on a threatening path to Earth. NASA also has a range of other missions, past and present, to study asteroids and comets. These studies are not only about asteroid diversion, but also about trying to figure out how these small bodies fit into the evolution of our solar system. One large win for asteroid science came earlier this year when new measurements of a potentially threatening asteroid, Apophis, determined it won't hit us after all anytime in the near future. All known asteroids and comets have their orbits published publicly on NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory's website and the website of the International Astronomical Union's Minor Planet Center, among other entities. Really great to know that Apophis is not going to hit us. I knew we were, I did, I remember reading about Apophis getting very close to Earth. I think it was going to be traveling around 2030, and I believe it was supposed to come back and possibly hit us in 2050. Now they're saying, and it doesn't take much, you got to realize, when they project these things far into the future, it doesn't take much of a shift as they're traveling. I mean, they're thousands and thousands of miles away. So as they get closer to us, it's very likely that something will knock them off their course. And I think that happened here with Apophis. But so as of now, no need to worry about asteroids hitting us anytime soon. We have we have DART, which is the double asteroid redirection test. They're going to do that on November 23rd. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. I want to thank you for listening today. My name is Chuck Shazer. You are listening to the S Factor, where it's all about science. I'm going to continue on after this brief break. We're going to continue to science news. And again, just if you would, please check out scienceanimated.net if you're looking for that perfect holiday gift for that young person in your life. It's educational. It's fun. It's family friendly. It's all the things that uh, you could possibly want in a holiday gift. And I've had people that contacted me. Their, their children watched it over and over again. And it is a great value. Very uh, inexpensive holiday gift. So be sure to check that out at scienceanimated.net. We'll be back after this brief timeout.
Oh, I love that song. Yes, it is November. And that is November Rain by Guns N' Roses. Welcome back to the S Factor, where the S stands for science. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. I want to welcome you back to my starship as we travel around the solar system to talk about all things science. If you like what you're hearing here on the S Factor, you can check me out online, all the past S Factor radio shows that are broadcast here on this great radio station, Cruising 92.1 WVLT, the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock. All my past shows are available in podcast form. Just go to your favorite podcasting service, whether it's Apple or whether it's Google or whether it's Amazon Prime. Just type in the S-Factor podcast. You'll see me come right up. Subscribe, give me a star rating, share it with your friends and family, anybody that's interested in family-friendly content that is exhilarating, that's interesting. I've always been a firm believer in producing content that is family-friendly and interesting. Also, if you're shopping around for a Christmas present, be sure to check out scienceanimated.net or check me out on Facebook at facebook.com scienceanimated where you can purchase my DVD or stream called Science Animated the Human Body. It is an exciting, exhilarating tour of the human body, and it's a 2D animated film. It's about 40 minutes long. I'd appreciate it if you could support the show and support everything that I do here with Science Animated by purchasing the movie or checking out the website, scienceanimated.net, subscribing to the YouTube channel, visiting my sponsors. Anything you could do would be a great help. I appreciate that very much. Let's move on to our next news bit. Now, if you are a guy out there listening to the show, do you remember growing up and as you're going through puberty, your voice changes and, you know, it's one of those situations in life where you're kind of embarrassed, your voice may crack, and maybe you tried to sound like you had a little bit of a deeper voice. Well, check this out. This is from Scientific American. A change to the sound of the voice can change your very self-identity. The voice is the human musical instrument. It consists of a vibrating element, resonating chambers, and energy that produces the vibrations. The energy comes from the breath originating in the lungs. Vibrations occur in the two vocal cords at the lower part of the voice box, or larynx, that are arranged in a V-shape, perpendicular to the trachea. Finally, the resonating chambers consist of multiple structures located above the vocal cords, the upper part of the larynx, the pharynx, the nasal cavity, and the mouth. Our voice is the only musical instrument that is both a string and a wind instrument as the breath causes the vocal cords to vibrate and is almost an orchestra unto itself. All this gives each of us a particular, unique vocal imprint. There are 7 billion humans, 7 billion different voices. Scientific American's French language sister publication, Survey Cycle, talked about the wonders of the voice to the Paris-based Jean Abadol, an ear, nose, and throat physician. Now, the following is an interview with Jean Arbidol, an ear, nose, and throat physician, phonetrician, and craniofacial surgeon. So Scientific American asked, how important is the voice to a person's self-identity? And she said, it is indeed an essential component. We see this very clearly when we operate on patients to change their voice. Their self-identity is strongly disrupted. For example, I met a lawyer who had a very deep masculine voice because of an 
edema on her vocal cords caused by her smoking. She smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. She had a great charm and authority in her profession, where she interacted with criminals on a daily basis. But she wanted to change her voice, which her fiancé didn't like, and she asked me to operate on her. I asked her to change her fiancé. Instead, she burst out laughing and had the operation done by a colleague. And she goes on to say, When I saw her again, she had a very high-pitched voice and told me something terrible. I am schizophrenic about my voice. She no longer recognized herself when she spoke and was seized by the impression that it wasn't her, that it was someone else speaking. The consequences were terrible. Her fiancé had left her. She could no longer work. She lost all of her court cases and had no authority. She no longer dared to open her mouth in person. Now, not because her voice had become higher pitched, but because there was some sort of rupture of harmony with who she was, a conflict with herself, a feeling of lost identity that destabilized her. She started smoking again, recovered her voice in two or three years, and gradually regained influence in her professional life. So in that example right there, you can see how changing that person's voice through surgery affected their their personal and professional life. Now, the interviewer asked, I mentioned that a change in your voice is also disturbing to people around you. And the surgeon goes on to say, that's well put. Imagine that from one day to the next, your spouse or children no longer sound the same. This is what happened to one of my patients, a 36-year-old woman. She had suffered from vocal cord paralysis since the age of 9 or 10 following a viral infection that controlled the vocal cords. This gave her voice like a whisper with no power. She had to use a bell to call for her husband. Now she goes on to say that she helped her you know, regain her voice, and I guess it was at a higher pitch, and she goes, Doctor, I have a woman's voice. She had never known this voice before, since her paralysis dated back to before puberty. The experience was still very positive for her. She no longer felt like a strange beast, but her family felt unsettled. After the operation, her husband asked me a question with some irritation in his voice. What have you done to her? She's not my wife anymore. The same goes for her children. She's not my mom anymore. Two months later... Having gotten used to the change, they came to apologize and tell me that they thought it was great, but their first reaction had been to feel usurped, as if something had been stolen from them. All of this illustrates the extreme caution that must be exercised before making changes to the voice apparatus. It's emotional surgery. When you have appendicitis, you operate on it, but if you detect a growth on the vocal cords, if it is not cancerous and does not bother the patient, why touch it? And she goes on to say, I knew the ENT specialist who treated Louis Armstrong. Armstrong had vocal cords with two enormous masses that probably gave him that hoarse voice with such power. Imagine if they had been removed. That's a good point. Now, why do men and women have different voices? Surgeon goes on to explain, mainly because of the hormonal influx at puberty. Testosterone causing a lengthening and thickening of the vocal cords, which are about 24 millimeters long, and 4 to 5 millimeters wide in men, and 18 millimeters long in women, as well as an enlargement of the resonance box of the larynx. Now, the interview also asked this doctor, this voice expert and surgeon, are there many people who are not comfortable with their voice and want to change it? And she goes, no, not really. It's rare that someone comes to me with such a request. In 95% of cases, I send them to a psychologist because it's a sign that they have a problem with themselves. For example, a 40-year-old woman with a thin, broken voice recently asked me to operate on her. When I examined her, I discovered a magnificent vocal apparatus. She then revealed to me that her problem dated back to the day after she lost her mother, who said she had an exceptional voice. There was nothing I could do. It was up to a psychologist to intervene. 
In most cases, the desire to change one's voice in a profound way betrays an underlying psychological problem. Without wanting to change it completely, many people want their voice to be more persuasive, to have a certain power. The importance of the voice in communication has long been known, but the desire to control its power has increased tenfold with COVID-19 and the advent of telecommunicating with virtual meetings. A voice coach can help in the end, but what these people want to change is not their voice itself, but the way they use it. And that was from Scientific American, an interesting take on the human voice and its psychological impact in our lives. And what happens when someone wants to change their voice, or maybe they, because of you know a mass that may be on their vocal cords, maybe they need to have that surgery. So I can imagine it would have a psychological impact. It makes total sense. By the way, if you want to reach out to me, if you have questions or comments about the show, you can email me at info at scienceanimated.net. I love hearing from you guys. I know this is a pre-recorded radio show that later becomes a podcast, but and still communicate, and I love going back and forth with you guys. Info at scienceanimated.net. Question, comment, anything you'd like to me to cover on the show? Love to hear from you guys. How many of my listeners out there are into gaming or having an avatar of yourself online, a representation of you online? Gaming and, and living in a virtual world is what many people do when they're done work. I know some people that as soon as they're done work, they they run to a gaming system or you know they'll have dinner and spend a little bit of time with their family and jump right on the console. I, I don't do that. I, that's okay if you like doing that kind of thing. But this next story kind of reminds me of the whole gaming realm and what people, how much time people spend there and how our technology is evolving to immerse us more in the digital world. Well, let's face it, if you if you spend a lot of time on Facebook, Twitter, you are communicating in a virtual space. So many of us are used to doing that on a on a daily basis. I mean, one of the things I do for a living is social media. That is part of it, living in this digital in this digital age. I mean, I I'm an artist. I'm a digital artist, so I spend a lot of time in front of a screen. So I'm used to being immersed with technology. I've, I've spoken many times about Elon Musk, everything that he's doing, not just Tesla with the electric vehicles, but what he's doing in regards to Neuralink. I've covered that a couple of times on the show. Again, if you want to check check any of those past S-Factors, you go to your favorite podcasting service, Google, Apple, type in the S-Factor podcast, and you'll find me there. All my episodes are listed. I've been on Cruise 92.1 WVLT now for almost two years with the S-Factor radio show, All About Science. So if you want to check out that story, it's in the archives, but that's part of what Neuralink will bring us. Now, they call it the computer brain interface, where they're going to wire us up. It's kind of like we're partially cyborgs now, but it's detached in a sense. It's not actually in our body. It's not a biological instrument that's in us. But that will be the next phase of technology. And again, Neuralink, Elon Musk's project, is a step in that direction. It may sound scary. Some of it is actually quite promising when it comes to people with disabilities, people that are blind, people that are hearing impaired, to bring those senses back to those people, or to move a prosthetic arm with your thoughts for people that have lost limbs and say that in military combat. So as scary as it may sound, 
you have that side of it bringing that inside of us really having a, a true computer brain interface connecting us with our technology with our devices with the internet now as we're on that topic when we come back we're going to talk about this new thing here facebook wants to change their name to meta we're going to talk about the metaverse and what's in store for us in the metaverse when we come back you are listening to the s factor where it's all about science and i'm your host chuck shazer creator of scienceanimated.net you can catch me here the first saturday of every month at 1 o'clock on Cruise 92.1 WVLT or anytime at scienceanimated.net. I'll be right back. Would you like to get into better shape, lose weight, have more energy, be toned, be stronger, be faster, have better endurance? Well, there's a solution. Tawny Fit. Certified personal trainer Tawny Basil is the owner of Tawny Fit. And having Tawny Basil as your personal trainer can help you get the results you're looking for. Now, whether you want to go to a gym with Tawny Basil and have her by your side showing you the right way to do the exercises, coming up with the perfect plan for you with your goals in mind, with your personal goals in mind, that's one way you can do it. Also, if you don't want to leave the home, you can do training virtually with Tawny Basil. She will. She has virtual sessions, so you don't have to leave the comfort of your home. And now she also has a facility where you can come to her in a little private gym, and you can get your workout in that way. So contact Tawny Basil at tawnyfit at gmail.com. That's tawnyfit at gmail.com for rates. And I think you had an offer, by the way, for the S Factor folks, didn't you? With a free session if they mention the show? Absolutely. If we don't you want to mention forget that. the show, you get a free session. Um, you can reach me at 609-674-8077. Text ready. That's right, folks. I'll give you that number one more time. If you want to contact Tawny Basil, text her the message ready to 609-674-8077 or email Tawny. Her email address is tawnyfit at gmail.com. Welcome back to the S Factor, where it's all about science, and I'm your host Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. I want to welcome you back. We're we're getting ready to talk about the metaverse, the metaverse, this landscape that these these technology companies are getting ready, building for us to play in, I guess to work in, to do trade in, the metaverse. Now, you know, Meta, Metaverse has been in the news recently, and of course, Facebook 
It's going to change their name to Meta. So a lot of these companies are, you know, wrapping their heads around the whole idea of a metaverse, a virtual world. So I saw this opinion piece on uh, Scientific American. I wanted to share it with you because it could potentially bring up some some valid points when it comes to this new landscape that we find ourselves slowly entering. Should big tech's plan for a metaverse scare us? Passing through a park in Manhattan recently, I spotted a plaque with a poem on it. Nature Poem by Tommy Pico. It included these lines. When nature palms my neck, I can't tell if it's a romantic comedy or a scary movie. And he says, I feel a similar ambivalence when I contemplate the metaverse, a concept being floated by Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and other tech moguls. It calls for a much more immersive experience for consumers of social media games, and other digital technologies. The metaverse gets us into the sci-fi territory of the Matrix in which evil robots pump a fake reality into the brains of captive humans. Is the metaverse so implausible or is it silly? Or is it scary? I can't decide, he says. According to a helpful history of the metaverse compiled by tech pundit Ben Thompson, Neil Stevenson introduced the term metaverse in his science fiction novel Snow Crash in 1992. Stevenson describes the metaverse as a three-dimensional virtual reality generated by goggles worn by the novel's hero, Hiru. The metaverse is a computer-generated universe that Hiro's computer is drawing onto his goggles and pumping into his earphones. Microsoft CEO Satay Nadella mentioned the metaverse at a conference last May. Nadella's speech didn't attract much attention, perhaps because his description of the metaverse is a bit murky. He says a metaverse made up of digital twins, simulated environments, and mixed reality is emerging as a first-class platform. Digital twins are simulations of real things such as cars, kittens, and humans. The metaverse generated more buzz after Zuckerberg discussed it last July. Zuckerberg says the metaverse goes beyond virtual reality and computer games, which it is often associated. He describes the metaverse as an embodied internet, where instead of just viewing content, you are in it, and you feel present with other people as if you were in those other places, having different experiences that you couldn't necessarily do on a 2D app or a webpage, like dancing, for example, or different types of fitness. That sounds like a rom-com version of The Matrix. Zuckerberg might be touting the metaverse to distract the public from his company's ongoing scandals. If the metaverse is a public relations ploy, not everyone is fooled. In August, Jessica Crispin, a columnist for The Guardian, published a fiery critique of the metaverse, lumping it together with the same space programs of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, Crispin calls the metaverse another escape fantasy of tech, of tech billionaires trying to leave the world to evade responsibility for their influence on it. Given the world's immense problems, Crispin argues, living in a consequence-free space of your own imagination, separated out physically from your fellow citizens to prance around with avatars and phantoms, is philosophically and psychologically objectionable. As a Netflix film, The Social Dilemma points out, Facebook and other tech companies care more about profits and social well-being. These companies already wield enormous power over us, which grows as they gather more data on us, and the metaverse could amplify that power. Now, Tim Sweeney, founder of Epic Games, producer of Fortnite, and other popular games, warned in 2017 that the metaverse could become a dystopian nightmare 
if it is controlled by a small number of corporations. As we build up these platforms towards the metaverse, Sweeney says, if these platforms are locked down and controlled by these proprietary companies, they're going to have far more power over our lives, our private data, and our private interactions with other people than any platform in previous history. The metaverse poses technical as well as public relations problems. The most immersive current interface for digital simulations is virtual technology goggles of the kind produced by Oculus, which Facebook purchased in 2014. Tech companies are exploring so-called brain-machine interfaces, that was what we were just talking about, that go beyond virtual reality goggles. These interfaces could further blur the line between us and our devices. Again, that is the goal. That is the actual goal moving forward here. It is to incorporate our devices in us, making them literally biologically part of us. Now, some brain-machine interfaces detect neural signals via external electrodes or optical sensors attached to the skull or other parts of the body. Such interfaces can also manipulate thoughts with electromagnetic pulses. These non-invasive devices, however, enable only crude mind reading and mind control. Tech firms are investigating far more ambitious interfaces that work via electrodes implanted into the brain through holes drilled in the skull. The devices can read signals from and transmit them to neurons directly, potentially enabling the kinds of the kind of precise mind reading and control envisioned in the Matrix and other science fictions. Facebook has funded research on both non-invasive and invasive brain-machine inter interfaces. Again, like I was saying before, Elon Musk has done work in this realm, and I've covered it on the S-Factor here. This is called Neuralink. So Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, is funding the same type of research here. I've raised doubts about the potential of brain implants, implants designed to treat depression, and other mental disorders by stimulating neural tissue have not lived up to their hype, and influencing mood via direct neural stimulation could should be much easier than creating detailed hallucinations and boosting intelligence, memory, and other cognitive capabilities. Facebook has reportedly discontinued, at least temporarily, research on brain-machine interfaces, which has produced disappointing results, but other companies such as Elon Musk Neuralink, continue to develop implanted interfaces. Moreover, Christoph Koch, a leading neuroscientist, has become a kind of cheerleader for brain implants. In a 2017 opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal, Koch advocates a crash program to design safe, inexpensive, reliable, and long-lasting devices and procedures for manipulating brain processes inside their protective shell. Here's another disturbing fact to keep in mind. The Pentagon has pumped tens of millions of dollars into research on brain-machine interfaces. And the author here goes on to say, I wish I could dismiss the metaverse and especially the version based on brain implants as silly techno-hype. So there you have it. A little insight onto what is currently happening when it comes to progress and research being done on whenever you hear BMI. That's, that's what it is, brain-machine interface. I want to know what you guys think out there. Contact me, info at scienceanimated.net. Are you scared as, you know, it seems like the author of this article is from Scientific American? Or are you looking at the bright side of things and saying, hey, this is going to help a lot of people? Because it will, you know, when this when this kind of technology, when they, when they perfect it, which can be, a, this could be a very long time, by the way, before they get something like this down. Uh, there's a lot of research that has to go into it. There's to be humane testing. And it, this isn't something that's going to happen next week, next year. This is a this is going to take some time to perfect something like this. And there are going to be all kinds 
of ethical questions regarding this stuff. Oh, you just know that's coming. <laughs> so let me know what you think. Uh, contact me at info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. And be sure to check out scienceanimated.net for Science Animated Human Body, the DVD that's for kids, I would say seven and up. And even teenagers would enjoy it. Heck, you know what? Adults enjoy the film. Check that out. It's a great holiday gift idea. Very unique. Uh, it's action-packed. And if you don't like it, there's a money-back guarantee. Scienceanimated.net. It's called Science Animated, the Human Body. I'm the creator of that. And I want to thank you for joining me today on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. There's more to come. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. back to the S Factor, where it's all about science. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. Thank you for joining me today on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. Oh my goodness gracious, remember growing up and, and wondering what was out there in the cosmos, looking up at the stars at night and wondering, are we alone? SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, has been listening in on our cosmos for quite some time. Now, this next story, according to Space.com, says, SETI, why extraterrestrial intelligence is more likely to be artificial than biological? What do you think about that? Is there intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? It's a question that has been debated for centuries, if not millennia. But it's only recently that we've had an actual change, chance of finding out with initiatives such as SETI, using radio telescopes to actively listen for radio messages from alien civilizations. What should we expect to detect if these searches succeed? Suppose there are other planets where life began that, and that it followed something like a Darwinian evolution. Even then, it's highly unlikely that the progression of intelligence and technology would happen at exactly the same pace as on Earth. If it lagged significantly behind, then that planet would plainly reveal no evidence of extraterrestrial life to our radio telescopes. But in, around a star older than the Sun... Life could have had a head start of billions of years or more. Human technological civilization only dates back millennia at most. And it may be only one or two more centuries before humans. Made up of organic material such as carbon were overtaken or transcended by inorganic intelligence such as AI. Computer processing power is already increasing exponentially. Meaning AI in the future may be able to use vastly more data than it does today. And it also seems that it could get 
exponentially smarter, surpassing human general intelligence. Now, perhaps a starting point would be to enhance ourselves with genetic modification in combination with technology, just like we were talking about before the break with these brain-machine interfaces to make us, to join us with the devices, with our AI. And this, of course, creating cyborgs with partially organic and partially inorganic parts. And AI may even be able to evolve, creating better and better versions of itself on a faster-than-Darwinian timescale for billions of years. Organic human-level intelligence would then be just a brief interlude in our human history before the machines take over. So if alien intelligence had evolved similarly, we'd be most unlikely to catch it in the brief sliver of time when it was still embodied in biological form. If we were to detect extraterrestrial life, it would be far more likely to be electronic than flesh and blood and may not even reside on planets. And it goes on. We must therefore reinterpret the Drake Equation. You guys familiar, familiar with what the Drake Equation is? Now, it was established in 1960 to estimate the number of civilizations in the Milky Way, which is, of course, where we live in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, the equation includes various assumptions, such as how many planets there are, but also how long a civilization is able to release signals into space, estimated to be between 1,000 and 100 million years. But the lifetime of an organic civilization may be millennia at most. However, if it's electric, if it's electronic-based, it could continue for billions of years. And of course, they're saying this because we, in biological form, we're limited. We're limited in space travel. As we get ready to travel to Mars, there are going to be a lot of challenges that we're going to be faced with. You know, we want to go to Mars, like as a civilization, right? Humans have that, that urge to do that. There's a lot we'll learn on our way there. But there was going to be an arduous task because we evolved on this blue marble. This blue marble is very kind to us with its conditions. We've evolved to its conditions. We are not, space is not friendly to us in our current form. That's what you got to worry about, radiation. I mean, there are, uh, in low gravity, you know, I remember reading a while back that it actually can decrease brain mass. I mean, we know that it decreases muscle mass because... You know, when you don't have the gravity that we're used to here on Earth, when you're out there in space, like on the International Space Station, you know, some astronauts that are up there, when they come back down, they can barely walk sometimes, you know. So there are a lot of physical and mental even challenges that we're going to be confronted with. So what they're saying here is, you know, if we if we merge with machines in some way, or if eventually humanity becomes completely machine, biological part of us slowly fades. You know, now you're talking about billions of years that that a civilization like that, of course, could continue unless something completely wiped them out. They're not going to, uh, you know, age away because they'll keep repairing themselves. Very interesting stuff here to, to contemplate about the future, right? Now, this goes on to say, are we artificial? Post-human intelligences may also be able to build computers with enormous processing power. Humans are already able to model some quite complex phenomenon, such as the climate. More intelligent civilizations, however, may be able to simulate living things with actual consciousness, or even entire worlds or universes. How do we know that we aren't living in such a simulation created by technologically superior aliens? Maybe we are no more than a bit of entertainment for some supreme being who is running such a model. Indeed, if life is destined to be able to create technologically advanced civilizations that can make computer programs there may be more simulated universes out there 
than real ones out there, making it conceivable that we are in one of them. Ah, the simulation theory. What do you guys think about that? What do you think about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence with SETI listening in? What do you think about this simulation theory? I want to know. Email me, info at scienceanimated.net. Info at scienceanimated.net. This conjecture may sound outlandish, but it all is all based on our current understanding of physics and cosmology. We should, however, surely be open-minded about the possibility that there's much we don't understand. Perhaps the laws we see and the constants we measure are only local and differ in other parts of the universe. What would lead to even more jaw-dropping possibilities. Now, ultimately, physical reality could encompass complexities that neither our intellect or our senses can grasp. Some electronic brains may simply have a quite different perception of reality, nor can we predict or understand their motives. That's why we can't assess whether the current radio silence that SETI are experiencing signifies the absence of advanced civilizations, or simply their preference. Now that is true, you know, just because we haven't heard anything yet, everything that SETI has picked up, every sound that has been picked up has been explained. It may not capture something that's unexplainable, and the reason might be, if there are advanced alien civilizations out there, it's possible that maybe they skipped the radio frequency age. Maybe they had it, and it was a really long time ago. So we're just kind of like ships passing in the night, where we'll never really be able to capture that. It's such an intriguing, thought-provoking idea, isn't it? I want to thank you guys for joining me today. That'll do it for the S-Factor today. I want to wish everyone who celebrates it a very happy Thanksgiving. Be safe out there. Remember to check me out on all social media platforms. You can check me out at facebook.com slash scienceanimated, twitter.com slash scienceanimated. You can get to my YouTube channel. The best way to get there is through scienceanimated.net. Just go up to your browser and click in scienceanimated.net. And it will take you directly to me. If you're interested in any of these shows, you can check them out on your favorite podcasting service. Just type in the S Factor Podcast and I'll pop right up. I've talked about so many things, a plethora of things over the last two years now. Actually, next month it'll be two years I've been on Cruise 92.1. So really cool stuff. This radio show gets converted into a podcast that'll be available most likely tomorrow. Stay safe. And stay curious. You have been listening to The S Factor, where it's all about science, with your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. Take care, everybody. You have been listening to The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WBLT.